I spoke, I spoke to David in the week, David Juniper that is, and uh, there's quite a bit of unrest as you've probably seen in the DRC, and they were advised to cross the border at night uh, and then come back for work in the day, so I don't know whether that's still continuing, but keep, keep them in your prayers. This appearance of um, Jesus after his resurrection uh, can be told around three words. Appearance, identity and recognition. The appearance of Jesus has, uh, as they all do, a number of features. Like the others, it's against a background of unbelief, zero expectation and disappointed resignation. No way were they expecting to see Jesus again. Their hopes for a new era in Israel had been smashed. It's physical. Jesus ate food. Uh, he actually said phantoms don't uh, consume food. It's the same Jesus who died. He's clearly recognisable. Um, but he's different. Um, some years ago I read a book with a title, The Same Kind of Different as Me. Um, uh, it's a great story. But that's Jesus. He's the same, but he's different. He suddenly appears on the road. And just as they're about to enjoy the meal, he vanishes. Same but different. He appears in in a number of free situations. In other words, they're not controlled. Um, anything can happen. Uh, there are two eyewitnesses. Uh, Legitimises the testimony. Jesus had said, I will rise. Um, a whole stack of references in Luke and Mark. Uh, these, members are, these men are not members of the twelve. They're associated with them and close to them, but they're not one of, they're not part of the twelve. They are also familiar with the scriptures. That's an important point. Jesus doesn't rebuke them or say you don't know the scriptures. He tells them off uh, for not believing the scriptures. And they weren't the only ones to see Jesus. They hightailed it back to Jerusalem and are told that Peter has seen the Lord and later he appears. And they saw him. It wasn't a mirage. It was a case of clear recognition. Some of the features. But we have to ask why Luke records this. Um, see, it's not just news. Uh, he's not writing for a newspaper. He has a purpose and he's writing history. What happened around... 30 AD in Palestine is what concerns him. And he has a clear and definite purpose. And he says quite clearly in Luke chapter 1, um, talks about many people have talked about it. There are lots of eyewitnesses. So I thought, I'll get into this investigative journalist business and uh, write an orderly account for a man named Theophilus. And his purpose... Verse 4, so that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. 
Stories were circulating everywhere. Many reported encounters with Jesus after his crucifixion. Are they urban myths? Are they folk tales? Exaggeration? Made up to defend a particular point of view? Luke sets out to establish what actually happened. So he interviews the eyewitnesses, people who saw, heard, touched, ate with Jesus, um, spoke with him. Then he wrote up his findings and he did it to establish the veracity of these appearances. He does his due diligence so that we can be certain beyond reasonable doubt that Jesus rose from the dead, exactly as he said. In 9.22, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day he was raised. Mark actually says, he said this plainly. I will rise. He did. An argument from the greater to the lesser is a legitimate way of reasoning. If we apply that to this, the greater is the resurrection, the lesser um, in that balance are all the other things that Jesus said and promised. And the argument goes like this, if he, go, if he does the greater, he will surely do the lesser. Paul uses it in Romans, if you want to look it up. So we can say that the fact that Jesus is alive, that it's certain he's alive, that means he keeps his word. He'll keep his promises. He is who he said he was, the saviour, the Lord, the ruler of the universe. And that has potent implications for everyone here, for our country, for our world, that Jesus keeps his word, that Jesus keeps his promises. So appearance, then identification, and this is the main part of the story. So it's certain that he's alive and he appears suddenly to two men walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And verse 16 says, but their eyes were kept from recognising him. Notice Luke doesn't say they didn't recognise him, but kept from recognising him. A third party's involved. Something or someone is stopping them somehow from recognising Jesus who they were very familiar with. Could be grief. It's, maybe it's disbelief. He's not going to rise, so it can't be him. Depression, disappointment, clouding their senses. I suggest that those may be present, but they're not the major cause. There is someone turning off the recognition faculties. And I'll go into that a bit later. But it again raises the question, why? Why doesn't Jesus just rock up and say, hey guys, it's me, Jesus, the one you're talking about? 
To answer that, we have to start with his response to their disappointment. Please don't read his rebuke as harsh, unloving and dismissive in the ways that you've probably received rebukes. He's not like that with his... Jesus is not like that with his frail, faltering, unbelieving, struggling people. What he's doing is calling their attention to what was there right before their eyes. Hear him again. O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. The problem is they don't believe the scriptures they have access to, that they know. It was all there, but they didn't understand it. And they didn't believe what it said. You will not get to know Jesus if you don't know the scriptures. And you'll miss him if you don't believe the scriptures. You say they got it all wrong. They were hoping, as they said, that, um, this, that Jesus would ransom Israel. But he up and died. That spells failure. Um, and loser. Some years ago, Joy was, Joy was playing a game with a young girl, I think she was about eight, and Joy was doing her best not to beat her, and in the end she won, and she went, loser, to Joy. Well, Jesus died. He's lost. And the reason for the recognition blankness is this, if Jesus had said, hey, it's me, these men would have continued with the same wrong thinking but with renewed enthusiasm and zeal. They would have been keen but clueless. It's a question of identity. Jesus setting out to establish his identity to these men. It's not very therapeutic, I know, it's, but it's right. He is kind and compassionate and his method was designed to reveal him. And in this case, sympathy didn't change anything, the truth did. He rebukes them for not believing the scriptures, then he immerses them in the scriptures. I mean, seriously? He makes them endure a Bible study when they're all depressed and discouraged and grieving. And they're probably hungry because they're on their way home. And what's more, he makes them endure a Bible study from the Old Testament. Who does that? Pushes a Bible study on people when they're not, when they're tired and busy and everything else. Jesus, it seems, thinks it's important to hear the scriptures even if you are tired, busy, grieving, preoccupied or whatever. So from memory, we could stop on that and that would be an interesting exercise in itself, that he takes them through the Old Testament entirely from memory. It's extemporary just amazing. 
He digs into the scriptures, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. It may be important that we see what he didn't do. Uh, if it's not important to you, then you can sign me off. He didn't say that every Old Testament passage speaks about Jesus in some way. He didn't say, I'm in every verse in the Old Testament. He didn't say the Old Testament is all about me. He said, in all the scriptures. Notice the in. Instead of saying the Old Testament is all about him, he took these two men through the scriptures, delving into the plethora of passages that point to him. He went through um, Moses and the prophets is shorthand for the Old Testament scriptures. He went through and pulled out the passages and all of that that spoke about him. To say that the Old Testament is all about Jesus goes beyond what he says. Remember the inn. And here is where he wants us to land. God's chosen one had to suffer these things. That shorthand for dying. And more, he says, it's a necessity. He had to suffer. It's, he must die. It's a divine necessity. So he takes them through the Old Testament. Of course, we don't um, know what passages Jesus expounded. But we can imagine, I found, I think it was close to 100, um, and I thought, well, it'd be profitable to work through those. Don't worry, I'm not going to do that. I couldn't endure it anyway, let alone you having to listen to it. Here are a few possibilities. Probably he spoke about Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise his head and you shall bruise his heel. In the future, this victorious man will smash the head of the servant, but in the process, he will be smashed by the servant also. Victory meant suffering for this promised deliverer. Maybe Leviticus 16 was one. That's, um, I won't read the whole chapter or chapters, um, but that refers to the Day of Atonement ritual. Um, it was the prescribed ceremony um, to point out how Israel's sins could be pardoned or atoned for. And two goats, lucky animals, were chosen. Goat one is offered as a sacrifice to cleanse the sanctuary, sacrificed on the altar, its blood shed. Goat two is dealt with quite differently. The high priest uh, ceremonially laid his hands on its head while confessing Israel's sin. Then it's taken outside the camp and sent off into the desert. It's carrying away Israel's sins. Isaiah says, yet he bore the sin of many or carried away the sins of many. The goat is a substitute. The goat has to die. Both goats die. 
Would he have chosen Deuteronomy 18.15? The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. The likeness is, is, is not faithfulness, but it's likeness in suffering. Just as Moses was suffered rejection and opposition and all sorts of stuff from the people, so this prophet like Moses, will suffer the same. Or Isaiah 49.4, But I said, I have laboured in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. Doesn't sound very triumphant, does it? Disillusionment, depression more likely. Those emotions reveal a great reversal or troubled times or significant betrayal or rejection. Isaiah 50, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pulled out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. And surely he would have chosen the most famous servant passage of all, Isaiah 52, 13 to 53, 12. I'd love to read the whole song. It's um, simply magnificent. But just a sample. His appearance was so marred that it was difficult to see that he was human. His form beyond the normal among the children of mankind. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, we esteemed him not, we had no respect for him at all. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. I imagine Jesus lingering over that exquisite passage. How the servant suffered. How deeply he suffered. Betrayed by people, crushed by God, he dies alone, betrayed, abandoned. Remember Jesus is drawing out these passages to show that the Messiah, God's chosen one, had to suffer. Probably could have taken them to Zechariah chapter 12. And I will pour out of, on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. I wonder if Jesus drew their attention to the problem that Yahweh himself was pierced. A divine yet suffering Messiah. He could have chosen Zechariah 13, 7 to 9. A sword strikes the one whom Yahweh calls my shepherd. And there are many, many others. 
so Jesus digs into the, into the scriptures with such skill, such conviction and such earnestness that these two men, reflecting on it, said, we found our hearts burning within us as he opened up the scriptures. How I wish that was my experience with the scriptures. But what we see is a suffering, afflicted, smitten, destroyed Messiah. And we get an idea of the direction of Jesus' thinking if we recall what these men know. They knew he was a prophet, a messenger of God. They know he did mighty things. They know he said mighty great things. They couldn't help it. It was done in public. Everybody heard it. He was a great preacher, skilled, articulate, courageous, penetrating. They know he aroused the anger of the authorities who eventually got to him and had him crucified. They had hoped that he would be the one that would redeem or rescue or ransom Israel. And they had heard reports that he was alive, but no one had seen him. And so, nah, can't be true. They know stuff, but they don't connect the dots. These men need to comprehend who the Messiah is. The glory and triumph would come only through death. It was imperative that the Messiah died. No death, no glory. We've got to grasp that Jesus had to suffer and die before he entered glory. The suffering doesn't rule him out, it endorses him. Far from obscuring his identity, it establishes his identity. These men don't believe or ignore or reject the passages that speak about the suffering servant and so they missed the glory and the mission and the identity of the Messiah. And that is so, so important. Look at these words from Luke's other book, the book of Acts. Uh, he talks about um, how this man was healed. And he talks about Jesus dying and rising again. And then in verse 12 he says, And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He died, he was raised to life, and what's more important, or just as important, is that no one else can save. How come? Because he alone is God's appointed rescuer. He alone paid the ransom to free Israel and the world. He is the only one because he is the God's only king. He had to die to ransom his people from sin, death and judgment. Death, the divine consequence of human re rejection and replacement of the creator. Jesus had to pay that penalty. He had to be the substitute in order for people to live. He died, destroyed death 
people live. These men had to know this. They had to know the identity and the mission of the Messiah before they recognised Jesus. Otherwise they would have continued with their agenda. They would have probably said, wow, that's great. When are you going to rescue Israel? How are you going to do it? How are you going to turf out the Romans? There would have been no progress in understanding, no understanding of the truth, no comprehension of the Messiah's identity and mission. For our benefit, let me pause for a moment on Jesus' method here. He immerses them in scripture because it's essential to know God from the scriptures. We must understand Jesus. We must get hold of who he is. We must understand and appreciate and believe what sort of Messiah he is and you won't get it if you don't immerse yourself in scripture. If you don't, you'll end up creating a Jesus that will fit your ideas, your desires, and that's fatal. Jesus is more concerned to reveal himself, his identity, than dealing directly with their sorrow. Um, as soon as they recognised him, the sorrow vanished. What he had to do was show them himself as the Messiah, Jesus. And Jesus wants us to know him and his usual method is to drag our noses through scripture. So it's worth checking your engagement with the Bible. As a congregation, in our gatherings, as families, and as individuals. Thirdly and finally, the recognition of Jesus. Uh, the scene is uh, these two men here all have this wonderful lesson on the road and as it's common in the east, they invited Jesus to stay over. In fact, they insist. And uh, as they're about to get into it, Jesus breaks a loaf of bread. Um, that's, this is not the Lord's Supper, this is an ordinary meal. And did you see the, the shift? Jesus, who was the guest, has now occupied the position of host. There is something about Jesus that makes that perfectly natural. But he eats with these men in an ordinary meal. He is truly remarkable. Anyway, he breaks the loaf and an instant they recognise him. His action is so familiar, um, so Jesus, that they recognise him instantly. But that's not all. Luke explains, and their eyes were opened and they recognised him. There it is again. A third party is at work. 
And just as they were kept from recognising him, now they're unable to recognise him. I suspect this is God at work, and my reason is Luke 24:45, which you would have heard when Rod read it, or Acts 16, which is again by Luke, one who heard us um, was a woman named Lydia who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Opened her heart, Luke 24:45, I enabled them to understand the scriptures. So the recognition is twofold. They recognise Jesus by a familiar action and by God reversing the non-recognition, however that occurs. To see what's going on here, fast forward to Acts 18.5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. The Christ is not a name, it's a title. Messiah is Hebrew, Christ is Greek. So Paul spent a great deal of time arguing, reasoning, teaching that the promised redeemer of Israel, the one spoke about in those passages that Jesus drew out with the men on the road, the one they called Messiah or Christ is Jesus of Nazareth. And in a couple of other places, Paul reverses the order and argues that Jesus is the Christ, both ways. So these men are kept from recognising Jesus until they get hold of the identity of the Messiah or the mission of the Messiah or his identity as a dying, suffering Messiah. Now they can recognise Jesus because they've got it. The Redeemer of Israel, the Messiah and Jesus are the same person. From the scriptures, Jesus shows us the Messiah had to die. It isn't defeat, it's God's way. His dying is a ransom for sin. And that one they spoke about was Jesus, the one standing on the road with them, the one who broke the bread in their house. Jesus is the promised one. He is the Redeemer. He is God's saviour. Jesus is the Messiah. So what I want you to take away from this morning from, from these meanderings, you need to take something. Otherwise, our time has been mostly useless. I've failed, you've wasted your time. I wonder what Luke wants us to take away and digest. I suspect he would want us to know the person, the work, the ways of a risen saviour, Jesus Christ.